Section 8 of The Symphony Since Beethoven by Felix Weingartner. Translated by Maud Barrows Dutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I trust that I have made it sufficiently clear that we owe the modern school, which has reached its highest development in Berlioz and Liszt, and what are the dangers that we have inherited from them. Besides the positive gain which we enjoy in the works of these two masters, we have also learned that there are other arts and forms of composition, besides those of the sonata, rondo, and variation, which seem so unavoidable. It has disclosed to the imagination a rich, though dangerous, field of action, where precious fruit may still be reaped. As it is customary in every great revolutionary movement that some shoot beyond the mark, so must it here also be confessed that music, while men were striving to increase its power of expression, at times was lowered from its sacred pedestal to become the slave of words and conceptions. The boundary line over which music cannot step without becoming unmusical is very hard to recognize. We are in need of a larger number of new and significant works in order that it may be more clearly drawn. If the younger generation of our composers comes to know that music is not a language of conceptions, if it recognizes the demand for form in composition, and it learns strictly to separate the symphonic from the dramatic style, then we need not give up the hope of hearing, in the future, symphonies about which, to use Wagner's words, something may be said, provided that someone comes who knows all this without being told. At all events, the modern school has been more stimulating and fruitful than the new classical. It has become the yeast in the bread of the Philistines, and its fermentation is more and more apparent in Germany and abroad. Thus I believe that some remarkable modern symphonies in the old form, and therefore belonging to the new classical school, would not have been composed exactly as they were if Berlioz and Liszt had not lived. I refer, among others, to the symphonies of Sending and Borodin, which I have already mentioned. In our days we see also desertions from the old school to the new. Dvorak, no longer a young man who can be considered as a pupil of Brahms and who has attained great success with his symphonies, has suddenly turned to program music and is composing symphonic poems. Some years ago we witnessed a similar conversion in the case of Richard Strauss, who was then a very young man. As a pupil of Hans von Bülow, after Bülow had deserted Wagner, he swore by Brahms, and wrote an excellent symphony of which the model is evident. Later he went over to the modern school, began a series of symphonic poems, by no means finished yet, and now in the public opinion stands as the leader of the most extremely progressive school. I consider Toad and Verklärung as one of the most worthy of these symphonic poems, more so than Don Juan, which is perhaps better known and liked. The former is a piece of spent passion, powerful both in invention and construction, and very sincere and genuine in feeling, except the close, which seems to me more pompous than glorious. A piece of equal value is the scherzo for orchestra, Till Eulenspiegel's Lustige Streiche which is most brilliant both thematically and instrumentally, indeed truly witty, if I may apply this word to music. In Also Sprach Zarathustra, Strauss falls into the same error which Liszt made before him, with the ideala. Liszt intended to picture a succession of moments during which man rose from his everyday life to a higher sphere, 
and so in Strauss's piece a series of world conceptions passes before us, each of which attempts to solve the great secret of life, represented by the succession of notes. C. G. C. None of them succeeds. And at the end, the CGCs stand out there as obstinately as in the beginning, and doubt. The father of truth, according to Nietzsche, the chord C-E-F-sharp, according to Strauss, may go on forever assailing it. No doubt different moods, such as religious feeling, passion, pleasure, and superhuman Dionysiac serenity, remember the last movement of Beethoven's A Major Symphony, may be rendered musically. Even granting that a fugue may symbolize science, which is barren in the solution of the final and highest questions of life, yet by the welding together of such widely differentiated moves into one movement, which makes it necessary for the listener to hunt out, bar by bar, the thoughts, no doubt ingenious, which guided the composer. The impression of the music, in the true sense of the word, is lost. Aside from these considerations, which even the masterly treatment of the orchestra does not dispel from my mind, the positive power of invention seems to me to be less in this piece than in earlier works by Strauss. This is due, I believe, to the fact that, from impulse to execution, the path of the composer in this piece lay in the dominion of conceptions, that is, that music is brought into an uncongenial sphere through which it always seems to be seeking the right way without ever being able to find it, and loses itself in experimentation. Strauss seems to be just as far from what I consider music in his newer works, Don Quixote and Ein Helenbleben, as in Zarathustra. With the old masters, we got along without programs. With Berlioz and Liszt, a title was sufficient. Strauss finds it necessary, even before the appearance of one of his new works, to bring out an extensive explanation and guide written by another hand. Why is this necessary if he really believes that his music has reached that elevation where it is in a position to speak to us as clearly as words? If he had accomplished this, we would be able to hear what he wishes to say to us without elucidation or program. Then he would have reached his goal. Fortunately, at the time of the first performance of Eulenspiegel, Strauss, confident of the musical character of this piece, Tactfully, one might say, when one recalls some of that Eulenspiegel anecdotes, avoided giving the program. In hearing this piece, even if it were performed without its title, we would get a certain impression of being seized or preyed upon, even if we did not think of Eulenspiegel. In his later works, this is the exception. No one, for instance, hearing the great violin solo in the Heldenleben, would think of a rebellious woman who was gradually won by the love of the hero or listening to the adventurous wind cacophonians of the second portion, would think of the hero's adversary if he did not know what this was what he was to imagine. The fact that the author himself considers it necessary, previously, to interest the public, is evidence that the new way which he has pretended to break through is only seemingly passable. For those extensive elucidations are nothing more than an open confession that in spite of the polyphonic art, and our astonishment over the instrumentation, these creations are senseless without intellectual explanation. On the other hand, a real program is not presented with these pieces, and thus the public is to a certain extent brought by an ambiguous way to their comprehension in that it must first be instructed as to what it should think, 
and then must consider it all as a direct language. The character of incompleteness, with which, on account of this proceeding, these extravagant compositions seem afflicted, and which presents itself in all more striking a manner since their originality in regard to spiritually rich harmonics, but in no wise in regard to original melodies and themes, can be exhorted, prevents them from having anything to do with works of genius. The truly original stands out, free and independent, and strides boldly through the world. It needs no preliminary studies and no crutches. Many aesthetic questions have been raised over Strauss's compositions, among others, if a flock of sheep, Don Quixote, could be represented in music. In my opinion, in this and similar cases, it is a question of how it is done. A mere imitation of the sounds of nature, as in Strauss's piece, can call up a recognition of the story, as, for example, a picture of a rubbish heap, painted in masterly, realistic style, shows the wonderful technique of the painter. In both cases, we need only the odors to make the illusion complete. A truly artistic and musical conception of a bleating flock of sheep could be scarcely less faithful than in Strauss's, but it would have to be much more full of sentiment, of humor, and music. May not one suspect, in many places in Strauss's pieces, where he, apparently in accordance with the principle, nothing is true, everything is permissible, heaps up the ugly on top of the ugly, that the composer, so accustomed from youth up to praise and recognition, for one cannot help being astonished at this man, that he celebrated himself in his latest tome poem, the hero struggling with the adversary, that his composer, now riding on the high wave of prosperity, wished to see how much he could offer the public with serious mien before the joke was discovered? In truth, did he not try some Eulenspiegelei in his compositions? Just as, for example, Bülow, according to my conviction, here and there attempted in directing concerts? Thus it is not the harmonic and instrumental abnormalities of the first rank, but rather the deeper observations which I have given above that make it impossible for me to agree with Strauss in his works during the last few years. Nor can his brilliant, even phenomenal success lead me to agreeing especially as the significance of contemporary success is but of ephemeral worth to him, who directs his glance back away from the figures of our day over the history of hundreds and thousands of years. Here I will speak of a curious feeling which I have often experienced, but which I have not found shared by others. If I hear a piece that reveals to me the weakness of the modern school, then there comes over me, after a short time of attentive listening, in spite of the great external difference, exactly the same sensations that a weak work of Brahms awakens in me, the same insipid, empty, and heavy feeling of torment. Does this similarity of effect lie in the fact that Brahms' music appears to me as the conception of music, as opposed to its essence, while in the program pieces, conceptions, as opposed to the essence of things, are intended to be expressed? May it be that the erroneous and artificial products of both schools are closely related after all, as is undoubtedly the case with their great productions? Perhaps from a very high point of view there are not really two schools, but only one. Time alone can tell. As I spoke before of an older and a younger composer, 
I may mention two other artists in the same purely external connection. Standing under the direct influence of Liszt, Bedridge Smetana, a Bohemian, wrote a series of six symphonic poems. He gave them the collective title Mein Vaterland, as he had found his poetical impulse in Bohemian folklore. I mention as especially valuable Vlatava, and then Vicherad, and Aus Bowman's Hain und Fleur. The first mentioned is an especially beautiful example of how far a prescribed program is compatible with music. An interesting figure of our day, but far too little esteemed as a composer, is Gustav Mahler. His works are of colossal dimension and require an unusually large number of executants, which makes more difficult their performance and reputation. But if we overlook these considerations, which after all are secondary, and turn to the composer himself, we find in him deep, strong feeling, which has its own mode of expression, and which says what it has to say quite unconcerned about the possibilities of performance and success. Mahler's most striking characteristic is the remarkable breadth of his themes, as well as their thoroughly musical nature. In many points he is like his teacher, Bruckner, only he understands better how to work with his themes and how to construct his movements. There may be bizarre passages, there may be needless difficulties in his works, we may notice a certain prolixity and perhaps a want of severe self-criticism in the selection of his themes, but everything that Mahler writes bears the stamp of a rich imagination and of a passionate and a vivid, almost fanatic enthusiasm, which always has awakened my sympathy. I have now spoken of the modern composers, also chiefly of Strauss and Mahler, who, standing in the middle of their creative work, lead our thoughts on from the present to the future. Whether there will come an artist who in his own way can carry on further the work of Berlioz, Liszt, and Wagner, and worthwhile to bring to a close the ranks of our great geniuses, no one today can tell. But we need not hinder our imaginations from picturing him as he would appear in our day. I think of him first as independent of all parties, and not meddling with them, because he is above them. I think of him not narrow-mindedly German, nor yet cosmopolitan and shallow, but having a strong, purely human feeling, because music is a universal art. I picture him inspired with glowing enthusiasm for what the great minds of all times and of all nations have produced, and having an invincible aversion to mediocrity, with which he comes in contact only through his own kindness. I think of him as free from envy, because conscious of and trusting in his own worth, far above any mean ways of advertising his own works. Profoundly sincere, and where needful, even indifferent, hence not a great favorite in many places. I imagine him not anxiously avoiding social intercourse, but with a tendency towards seclusion, not hating men in exaggerated world grief, but despising their meanness and narrow-mindedness, and so choosing only special persons for his daily intercourse. I think of him as not indifferent to success or failure, but refusing to allow either to alter his course by a hair's breadth, very indifferent to so-called public opinion, and politically a Republican, in Beethoven's sense. I see him wandering, as it were, in an alpine region, 
where the clear white mountain tops greet us kindly, but yet are awe-inspiring, with his gaze constantly fixed on the highest peak toward which he is always advancing. Although he feels himself akin only to the greatest geniuses, still he knows he is only one link in the chain, and that other great men will succeed him. So he belongs, indeed, to a school, but not to one which soars over the heads of humanity and vanishes. If we come down to reality after this flight of our imagination, we recognize that we are living in an interregnum, in a period of transition. Everywhere we notice a pulsating, restless activity, an uncertain groping after dim objects, a hankering for success and celebrity at all costs and by any means. Progress. Neo-Germanism. Hitherto unheard of originality. Precursor. Epigon. Eclectic. Founder of a new school. Superseded standpoint. These are many of the catchwords which strike our confused ear. Now we hear of a new tone poem, in comparison with which the works of Wagner, Liszt, and Berlioz are but the productions of pygmies. There the true popular vein is said to have been rediscovered. As in a fata morgana, the new pass before us, fade, and die away. An almost frivolous admiration of the willful, the irregular, the ugly, has manifested itself in many places. Where formerly every Philistine crossed himself before every Tritonus and eagerly searched for every inharmonic relation, nowadays they sanction every harmonic absurdity, calling it a bold act if only it occurs absolutely without reason. And he who has accomplished the most along that line is styled a reformer. No doubt in the midst of all this confusion, the great, the truly new, and the original is silently preparing, but far away from the art market. Its appearance will be a question of personality and not of education. The artist cannot live far from the activity of the world. He must get his ideas, his inspirations, and the plumb line for his work from life. Will our present most intense nervous and strenuous existence let some soul develop within, in the midst of all the press and drive, that degree of intuitiveness and poise from which alone great works of art stamped neither with more or less than the fad of the day can come? Will, without reaction, that loftiness without pathos, that charm without coquetry, that strength and sweetness of spirit by which our great masters were characterized, return today upon the basis of the modern philosophy of life? In this age of invention and mechanics, isn't art possible that standing as far above all time as everything really great does is still the child of its time? The answer to this question must be left to the future. Meanwhile, we may reach firm standing ground in the conviction that true progress will not come from the outward, but from the inner man. If an artistic production is the result of speculation only, and not of an inspiration, it may dazzle us, but will never truly interest or permanently fascinate us. Those who share with me this conviction will cry out to the gifted and ambitious composers, let your feelings, your thoughts, your ideas be great and noble, as great and noble as those of our great masters. Then you will produce the right kind of works, and just as you produce them, they will be right. 
and if you cannot do this then mount pelion upon ossa write for a thousand trombones and for two hundred thousand kettle drums nothing will result but a bogey brilliant technicality is not enough naturalness straightforward and powerful sincerity that is what we want write down without fear what your spirit impels you to write and express what must be expressed then it will be an image of yourself an expression of your own nature have moreover the courage to remain what you are even if you are misjudged or torn to pieces only do not think that a ninth symphony or a nibelungen tetralogy will result from your attempts the world will be very thankful to you for an opera in the style of lortzing or for a symphony such as hermann getz has written provided what you have composed is genuine and not artificial do not imagine that every one of you must be superhuman if the misunderstood teachings of zarathustra ring in your ears and set your brain in feverish agitation to only a few is it permitted to wander on the highest summits of humanity and this superhuman state cannot be constructed learned or required that endowment comes only as a transcendent gift from the regions above from which you eagerly ask well from that region which only he would deny who has never felt its breath wafted across to him be it a little song or a great symphony that you compose it will only be a masterpiece if it deserves the same motto that the great beethoven wrote on the score of his misa solemnis von herzen moga et zuherzengan felix weingartner end of section eight end of the symphony since beethoven by felix weingartner translated by maud barrows dutton